0: This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of true crime stories and nursing and, well, really, healthcare. Let's don't say nursing because we talk about other professionals in healthcare. And this week, we're going to be talking about EMTs and paramedics. We're going to talk about the difference between the two of those and I have an EM, I have, oh my gosh, I almost said it again. I have a paramedic on with me today and a nurse. And it's just one person. <laughs> I'd, <laughs> I'd like to introduce you to Natalie. Natalie,
1: welcome to the show. I'm first so of glad all. to be here. Thank you.
0: This is a really special show because number one, Natalie is the good paramedic or the good nurse or whatever you want for to call it for this particular show. Because when we get to that portion and we start talking about Natalie, for one thing, I, the fact just the fact that she is both a paramedic and a nurse, I think is amazing. But also, she has a story, it is truly unbelievable. And it's one that if they put this in a movie, you would roll your eyes and just be like, that's the dumbest thing. Ever. There's no way that would happen in real life. That's kind of ridiculous, because it's so it doesn't seem like it would happen. It was it's so out there, but it did. And it's it will warm your heart. you I, I just can't wait for you guys to hear the story. CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist, and it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis, and it really does help. That's amazing. And, of course, their products are 100% THC-free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash goodnursebadners. That's cbdstat.care forward slash goodnursebadners. Be sure and put the forward slash badners in there so they'll know that we sent you there. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, use your put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Without further ado, it's a bad EMT story that is it's a cautionary tale for sure. I want I, I really I like these kinds of stories because I feel like it really helps people in healthcare, especially nurses and, you know, EMTs, paramedics, people that are that have access, you know, to supplies and medications. It really helps, I think, to teach them how important it is to be really careful and to be honest and about, you know, integrity and what what your responsibilities are, but also how dangerous it can be if you decide to cross a line at some point, you know, take things into your own hands. So with that, I guess we can get started with this story. This is the story of Michael Whitehead. He was an EMT in Kentucky. At the time that that this happened, he was 26. He had been an EMT for seven years and had recently moved to Louisville, Kentucky, with his wife, Ashley. Ashley was 24 when this happened, and they had a young daughter. She had been sick on and off throughout their marriage and had made several trips to the emergency room once her illness just got to the point that it just wasn't tolerable for her. Each visit basically concluded with the same result. She would be released home with a referral to a specialist. I don't know why she maybe I don't know if she did go to the specialist or maybe they for insurance reasons or for just financial reasons they didn't but for whatever reason she just kept getting worse and in 2008 she was admitted to the hospital and was diagnosed with Crohn's disease so by this time she she was under the care of a physician and would complain about headaches and stomach pains you know, Natalie, I don't know if you've ever cared. I'm sure working on the floor that you and I worked on together, I'm sure you've had patients that have oh, this sure, disease. and it's
1: so painful. It just when they have flare-ups, they it truly you truly have to stay on top of the pain medicine because they truly do hurt. Their blood pressure goes up, and you can just tell they're in pain. And that is one thing that you need to stay on top of is their pain medicine because it is it's a flare-up, and then in a couple of days it'll get better. But there are times where it is it's excruciating
0: yes and it's a lifelong I mean, a disease for them that they have sure to and with. you have to and, change
1: your diet you can you can't eat certain foods mm-hmm. and it's a whole lifestyle change
0: yes absolutely and people can get to the point that they have to have surgeries bowery sections you know, colon- yeah sections mm-hmm. right it's not only a physically difficult d- disease to have, but emotionally, sure. you know, psychologically, it just affects them in so many ways. So I have so much compassion for, pe- for the people going through this because it's just something I can't imagine having to deal, you know, with right. something like this. So that's what she was going through. And also a really, you know, I can't imagine having to be the spouse of someone or the a significant other of someone going through this and watch them you know, having, you know, being that much pain and suffering and you feel like there isn't anything you can do for them. Right. So, well, even though she was under the care of a physician, she did seem to be getting worse and would, like I said, complain of headaches and stomach pain. So in 2009, he called, Michael called 911 and said that his wife, Ashley had accidentally overdosed in their shared apartment. According to court documents, he advised law enforcement that his wife was chronically ill and was on prescription pain medication So when help arrived, Ashley was in cardiac arrest and was rushed to the hospital where she later died. So during a search of the couple's home, police discovered a prescription bottle for Dilaudid for Ashley. But all 120 pills were missing and unaccounted for. So a typical overdose case was starting to look more like a homicide case as the investigation continued. The county coroner made an alarming discovery of needle marks on Ashley's feet and arms and concluded that she died from a lethal combination of Finnergan and hydrocodone. So Michael later admitted that he took it upon himself to treat her illness with stolen supplies from his employer. Over the course of six months, he took IV fluids from his employer and administered them to Ashley before his treatment methods progressed. He confessed to crushing her prescribed pain pills and administering them intravenously. So, Natalie, the when I first started working on the floor, I was working on a PCU when I was a new grad, I remember being so shocked, just completely shocked. And I was forty years old when I went to nursing school, so I had lived a little <laughs> bit and seen a little, seen a so few you things. Thought. I thought I had no idea. I was so naive, and I did not even know the things that people go through who struggle with and suffer from substance oh, use disorder. Yes, who, it's yeah, it's horrendous. I knew we had an opioid sure. crisis. I knew that we had a heroin crisis, that, that especially in this area, that obviously these recreational drugs or illicit drugs are a problem, especially in the area where we live. I did not know, though, that injecting medications could lead to the problems it could lead to, like bone infections and skin infections and blood yes. infections. We see right.
1: that a ton in the hospitals, or mm-hmm. endocarditis.
0: Endocarditis is huge. It's an infection of the lining of the heart that's caused because you inject, you know, crushing up medicine. Even if you you try to heat it up so that it melts or whatever you. You don't have a sterile environment in your house. And so you mixing, even if you try to get sterile water somehow, or you think, you know, you have, you d- you d- try your absolute best to keep things sterile. It's You're not keeping things sterile. There's just no possible right. way. You're then mixing up this medication and you're going to put it in, in, you know, introduce it into your bloodstream. And that then ends up going straight obviously to the heart. Pumping through yeah. your heart. Yeah. And so then you get an infection of the lining of the heart. You can also get infections, the local infections there, right where the injection site is. You can get skin infections. That can also exacerbate and lead to bone infection. You can end up losing digits, limbs. You can become paralyzed if it gets into your spine. I mean, the things that I have seen over the years of uh, for, you know, people who suffer from this, I just remember being shocked. And so another thing that can happen in addition to what i just mentioned is if you're trying to crush up a pill and dissolve it and then enter you know inject that into your bloodstream you it you can't be sure that you're getting all of it and it's completely dissolving you can get a little and that's all it takes of and that's all it takes and that causes an embolism and then you're dead immediately and i think they suspect that's what happened here with ashley that you know in crushing up that those, that well, I mean,
1: let's talk about just from, it said that she had taken the fenegrin and the hydrocodone. I mean, both of those are going to suppress your respiratory drive and make you insomalant and, you know, and Lord, I mean, we don't know exactly how many of each he gave her. And plus you're giving it IV That's and true. how quick
0: it works. I mean... Right. So when you're given a medication IV, it's gonna you're you know you're gonna take less milligrams. Sure. So the because it's more potent. And it's going straight you know, into your bloodstream. We don't know how
1: fast he pushed it. Did he put? Did he set it? You know how you're supposed to. In some medicines you dilute, and then some medicines you know you never push a medicine fast unless it's like for a cardiac arrest or something like a denison or whatever. But, you know, most medicines you take over time, you push a little at a time, and we don't know how quick he pushed it. Right. I mean. It, it, there are several things that could have happened here.
0: And like you said, it could have been an issue of respiratory depression, these medications just basically, she's laid there and slowly stopped breathing,
1: or, you know, the crushing up medicine just and putting in I just to sit here and IV. think like, how did he make it a liquid? Did he use like the sink water? out of the bathroom? I would guess he probably used I would saline ho- I mean, I wouldn't slushies. say I would hope, but you just never know.
0: If you have the option, I would think right. that's what he was doing because it did, you know, he was stealing supplies, you know, he was taking this, or maybe he was taking the saline, in the saline bag and drawing, drawing some of that up. It still doesn't matter. It is not, there's no way that's no, appropriate. absolutely to not. doing that. I mean, let alone the fact, obviously, it's sure. illegal. I mean, you, I know people get desperate, and so I I try not to act like I'm just, you know, so high and mighty that I can't fathom somebody breaking the law. I get it. I mean, she, I'm sure, was in horrific pain, and I know it can't be easy to watch your loved one suffer like that. So I don't know if it was because they couldn't afford to go to the doctor, and it was this was a way to supplement, or if the doctors weren't prescribing enough— Maybe she did develop an addiction to the medication. That can happen. I mean, you're taking it for a legitimate reason, but
1: right? But the other thing that runs through my still, mind is: does he want to be the her the heroic person and come in and save the day too? You know, mm. and a lot of those things we can't really sure. know that for sure. You know what his intentions right.
0: were, but the thing is, some maybe a little bit of everything right. kind of playing playing into this. Wanting to, I mean, it's your wife. You know, you want to be able to save sure. her. You want to be able to. I mean, if it was. you know, even it's not just a man woman thing. I think women want to protect their, you know, their husbands, too. It's like you want to you don't want to see them suffer. And if there's anything you can do, you want to do it. But the thing is, it's hard, so hard for me to understand how an EMT, who surely must have been called in seven years must have been called to some situations like this. How did he not know that this was a risk and a danger? Would
1: he not have been you do get educated a little bit thing. about it going through IV school, but I learned more about, honestly, me personally, I learned more about endocarditis and, and drug use infections when I went through nursing school than I ever did through EMT and paramedic school. We touched a base on it a little bit, but not anything, because the fact is, in as a nurse, you're taking care of these endocarditis endocarditis patients for days and weeks, maybe months. As an EMT or paramedic, you know, your job is to save their life until you get them to a higher level of care, which would be the hospital. So you touch base a little bit about it, but you would think that he would know better. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. I mean, you still learn your five rights in EMT school, the same five rights that we learned in nursing school. So, you know, he was not following his five rights. Yeah, I mean, clearly, I guess it makes sense that an EMT
0: or a paramedic on that end of it, they are concerned with saving your life, like the emergent problem, what is going on, stopping, stopping the bleeding, getting the heart (laughs) pumping, do whatever you have to do to help get them stable and get them to the hospital is your job. And so it's not really your job to, I mean, think about why we need to know these things, it's a lot of it is because of educating. It's our job to help educate patients about these things. And uh, EMTs and paramedics are not concerned with education. we're not. It's, you know, (laughs)
1: how do we get there? How do we get them alive and keep them Mm -hmm. alive until we get to a higher level of care where we have doctors and more nurses? And, you know, when you're going 90 miles an hour and down the highway, and it's just you in the back of the ambulance, I mean, it's a little different than being in a hospital in a code situation where you have physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists, and you're everything. Like you're the pharmacist, you're the respiratory therapist, you're the physician, you're everything in the back of the truck with just you. And Mm. sometimes you may have a firefighter with you, sometimes you don't. Well, investigators interviewed Michael's colleagues, and they kind
0: of got mixed reviews. That happens. I mean, you know, people have different interpretations of things and different perceptions. But some colleagues said that they were really just completely shocked that when they heard the news that he was facing these serious charges including a count for murder obviously they said that he was no doctor death that he had no intentions of harming his wife they described him as a compassionate person and someone who would do anything to help. They also remarked that they knew that Ashley was in constant pain and that Michael felt bad about not being able to help her. Contrastingly, though, there were other co-workers who weren't so quick to come to his defense. They kind of spun a little bit different story about his character. A previous co-worker claimed that Michael once pulled out a knife at work and announced that his wife, quote, didn't love him anymore and that he should just go kill his wife and himself. That is... To me, you know, to find one person who says something like that, I don't feel like it's fair to give that a whole lot of evidence. you know, because whether or not it really happened, people can hold a grudge for something completely unrelated. So I can understand, you know, investigators wanting to get all sides of it. I feel like it, it... If you've got enough people saying he really loved his wife, you know, that's where I think the weight should fall, just in trying to figure out their, you know, the dynamic of their relationship. There was an employee who filed a sexual harassment claim against him. She said that he would come up behind her and grab her inappropriately, things like that, said he would kill his wife to be with her. I mean, you know, I don't know. Again, a lot of times things like this, you you have this, you have behavior from people and then something happens And then you look back and you can find all kinds of things and point to, you know, like, oh, this is why. When in reality, it's just being human and having some, you know, making mistakes or maybe not even being a good person. I mean, sometimes people are jerks, but they're not necessarily a killer on, you know, so, you know, he could have been unfaithful to his wife or he could have even been, you know, had problems with anger or whatever. But that doesn't mean that he did this intentionally to me. You know, so according to police documents, when she asked him why, she said Michael said he had given his wife medications in the IV, including crushed pills, but said it was evidence police would never find because he hid it. So it's hard again, how would you why would you tell someone that? I don't understand like and yet people do dumb right? things. Boy, it does seem awfully strange that he would actually say all of that to somebody. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN DNP or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnersbadners.com. She said that she saved a file on her laptop about their chat. She also said Michael asked her to delete the files off his computer hard drive, but she refused. In August, search warrants were served at Michael's grandmother's home in Jeffersonville, Indiana, to get his computer... So during an interview with investigators, Michael admitted that he had been physically violent with his wife previously and had choked her. He would later take to an outline forum to publicly provide his account of events that was on Reddit, I believe, and would remark that while he made regrettable mistakes in his marriage, the mistakes did not result in the death of his wife, despite the stories spun by the prosecutors and media. Michael's initial charges included murder, domestic violence, wanton endangerment, tampering with physical evidence, practicing medicine without a license, and theft. The charges were later amended to reckless homicide, practicing medicine without a license, and two counts of theft. He pled guilty to the amended charges and was sentenced to 12 years in prison. The case was not taken to trial due to him agreeing to this plea deal for the reduced charges. Kentucky law allows for the possibility of an early release for certain offenders. After serving anywhere from 30 to 180 days in prison, these individuals may be eligible for probation. So in September 2010, he applied for the possibility of an early release, but he wasn't granted by the judge at that time. So the Commonwealth Attorney's Office argued Michael should have to serve the entirety of his 12-year sentence. He, however, only served six years of his 12-year sentence and was released early in 2015 after completing multiple rehabilitation programs that awarded him time off his sentence. As I said earlier, he did he would go on online forums and kind of give his accounts of the event. He remarked on his Reddit post that, Prison afforded him time for introspection, and during his incarceration, he endeavored to make amends for his actions. He stated that he exercised good behavior, took multiple rehabilitation classes, and became a, jail ho- quote, jailhouse lawyer to assist other inmates with their own legal battles. According to Michael, he even developed a PowerPoint to educate EMTs and paramedics on his mistakes and help them learn from his errors. I do think that's admirable. Um, sure. And I think that people can learn from people can be, go to prison, you know, and learn from their mistakes and be rehabilitated. I believe it's hard because I know a lot of times these people get out of prison and then they have to continue suffering the consequences of their actions. You know, they're not able to get a job. Right. And you know. I
1: mean, at the end of the day, he still lost his wife. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, at the time of this post, of the post that he made on Reddit, he said that he and his girlfriend were expecting a child and he was pursuing a degree in paralegal studies. He wrote that he thinks of Ashley and their daughter daily and how his actions adversely impacted them all. He also proclaims to have received training on car- carrying naloxone and carries it with him. His post also states that unless laws are changed, his chargers cannot be expunged nor can be pardoned. He attempts to appeal to the reader of the injustices that individuals faced after having paid their debts to society. He argues that society is unwilling to accept that individuals can better themselves after incarceration and live an honest life. And I just, I have to, I tend to have compassion for these people because I think it isn't fair to put someone in prison, have them pay their debts debts to society, and then that just goes as a blemish against them forever, and they're not able to become. I feel like there should be a way to work your way out of it i don't mean like the second you've paid your debt you're good and it's never going to be on your name and for certain crimes right right. depending on what it is you know but it does seem like there should be a way to work your way out of something like this so that you can have it expunged don't you i mean i don't know what do you think i
1: don't know if like this would be a good thing to have expunged though because if you get charged with murder i mean Mm-hmm. I do feel like that I'm not saying once a murder, or always a mm-hmm. murder. I'm not saying that people can't change because they can, but. Well, especially in this day and age, this
0: post-COVID world that we live in, where there are just no, it, there are no workers sure. in any line of work. In healthcare obviously is horrible, but not even just healthcare. Any service industry, anywhere where people are having to work with the public, <laughs> I have my own theories about that. But I I think that these, we need workers.
1: So I'm just trying to figure out where everybody's hiding at nowadays, why they the way they don't work. Anyways,
0: yeah, I think that people are doing different types of jobs. I think that people are it's not that they're not working, but they've just shifted to other types of work. I think people are over people. Yeah. <laughs> people people are people can be jerks, you know, in the public setting and you and I experienced that as nurses dealing with the public working at the bedside. The patients and family
1: members sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes can Just they can mentally drain you. They can mentally drain you more than the patient can. I feel like sometimes.
0: Mm Hmm. Yeah. And while we are trained to try to be patient, try to be compassionate, empathize with our patients and our family, and we do that to try to realize, okay, this is obviously not the their best moment. This is not. This is a difficult time in their life. They're in the hospital. If you're in the hospital, you are not having your best day. So. Just trying to rem- rem- remind yourself of that. But then sometimes I think people, just the fact that they are going through something and they are in the hospital, that they feel somehow entitled to just take it out on the staff. And we all had better, you know, like I said, healthcare, restaurants, anywhere that you have to go and deal with someone who is providing a service. We all need to check ourselves and realize that we're we may not have that service if we aren't nicer to people and kinder to people and more patient with people and appreciative. Sure. I mean, no, I agree. Yeah, I think when you know if you go to a restaurant these days, it's it's like slim pickings. There's not a lot of staff, and they're you know they'll tell you I'm, it, the wait's going to be a while, but just we just don't have enough people working. Oh yeah, I went
1: to somewhere the um, other day and drove up, and I was it was like four thirty, and. They were closing at five due to short-staffed, and I was like, wow, and it was a Friday night. And I thought, man, they're going to lose a lot of business on a Friday night, but they just didn't have the staff. Yeah, and if you don't have the
0: workers, I think that there's going to have to be, you know, not that this is that kind of podcast, but I think that there's going to have to be a shift in the way that a lot of people who own businesses and run businesses, CEOs, you know, I think they're gonna, there's going to have to be a mind shift about the the pay structure and who gets paid. The right, most, sure. Yeah. You know, and who, you know, there's been it's so top heavy in so many with so many businesses and organizations, it's very top heavy. There, you know, the CEOs, the CIOs and CFOs and COOs and all of the people at the top with making their hundreds of 1000s of dollars and millions of dollars a year, in some of these corporations, And then people at the other end who are actually doing the work. That that model, I don't know that it's going to be continued. Sure, and I've said this for for years,
1: and I'm not trying to go down a rabbit hole, but I feel like CNAs, for examples, or nurse techs, whatever you want to call them, whatever your organization calls them, they do not get paid enough. I mean, I have worked with CNAs, and I've worked without CNAs, and let me tell you, I would much rather be a nurse with a CNA and a good CNA you know, than not having one at all. Cause that will make or break your day. And you know that as well as I do. Yes. And it's, it,
0: it, it makes all the difference in the world. If you have a CNA or a nurse tech who you can That's trust. That's another thing. Yes. That, yes. Yeah. You know that they're, if they say they turned your patient, patient, sure. they turned your and patient. And they documented it. Um, but if you've got, <laughs> and they documented it and you just know they're, I just love it. Certain, certain ones, you know, your patient's going to get their bath. and, you know, and obviously, and I'm that nurse that's going to be like, "Hey, let me know when you're going in there to give the bath. I can come in. I'll come in there and help. But then I'll have some CNAs who literally will just go in there and do it. Not you don't ever, even know where they're you know, at. Then they come out and anything. they're like, "Oh, I just mm-hmm. bathed room six. And it's like, "What? Right. I would have helped you. Yeah, they'll get everything done and then just be like, "Hey, could you just help help me turn them? I'm like, "I told sure. you to come and get yeah. me. So I appreciate them so much. They are way, way, way underpaid and underappreciated, and. I, we're gonna have to do more to fight for them, fight sure. for the the phlebotomists, the health unit coordinators, all the respiratory therapists. I mean, all of us in that level of healthcare where we're doing the hands-on, we're de- the, in the down and dirty, in the trenches, doing this work. We all should be getting paid more than what we're getting paid. It really is going to have to shift. I mean, that's right? Yeah,
1: something's going to have to give because, yeah, and there's more and more people leaving healthcare. I know, I know, it's happening all the time. So I have to tell you guys
0: about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day, and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course... Y'all know the Echo technology company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littmann to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littmann Core digital stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Well, I guess that kind of wraps it up. That's that's that was the story and it's definitely like as I said, cautionary tale. And I wanted to talk about, because now I'd like to get into the good nurse portion of, of the story. As I told you guys at the beginning, Natalie has there's really like three parts of this whole <laughs> section, because we live, I mean, like there's this unbelievable, unbelievable story, like just wait till you get there. That's going to be like the big finale. You're not, you, y'all are going to be like, there's no way this happened. But then I, I'd like to talk, you know, like start off by just talking about the differences between an EMT and a paramedic. And then we're going to talk about a really cool thing that happened that, that you were involved with. So tell everybody the difference between an EMP, EMT and So an EMT, EMT is
1: emergency medical technician, and they usually go to school for, depending on where you go, six months to a year, and then they have different levels of EMT. I know the state of Tennessee has advanced EMT, EMT intermediate, EMT IV, so they can do more skills as they progress. And then a paramedic goes to school for one complete year and you have to be an EMT before you can be a paramedic. And they can innovate, They can put a needle in your bone to be able, to, what we call an IO, to be able to give intravenous drugs if we can't get an IV. They can do a tracheostomy where if we can't get an airway, we can basically do a surgical crike in your throat to give you an airway. We can give all drugs, the only drug that we cannot give in the state of Tennessee, and this varies from state to state, is we cannot administer insulin in, this, in the state of Tennessee. And then in the state of Tennessee, paramedics cannot initiate blood. So, Tina, you know as well as I do, when we're in the hospital setting, giving blood is a 2RN is check where two, two nurses have to verify at the bedside together. Paramedics cannot do that. We can transport with blood after it's initially started, but we cannot... Initiate blood, and we can defibrillate intubate. We can do the neck veins for an, an IJ. And obviously, this is state specific. Sure, we can do needle decompression of the chest if you have a tension pneumo. I mean, it's really amazing, and if you think about, it, you would want to sure because the person you have who is no the first idea responder, what you're gonna, you know, you could you could deliver a baby and then go in service and and you know get grandma that fell or you know little Johnny you know is hurt or whatever so you mm-hmm. just really have to be yeah. i always tell people all the time we're a jack of all trade and a master of none because we have to know a little bit about everything
0: yeah i mean you imagine getting called to a baseball field where a, a kid was you know hit th- hit the ball and it went it hit somebody in the it hit one of the other kids in the throat and they lost sure. their airway yeah. i mean some something like that could happen and then you get then th- the same settings the Grandfather's there and they go into cardiac arrest because they get so upset, right. you know, by the whole situation. And you literally yeah, could, yeah. you have somebody going into labor. So I can just imagine, you know, for for me, I like everything kind of a little bit to have a little bit more ordered. So that's, I think that's why I enjoyed the ICU so much, especially the cardiovascular ICU because it's not only ICU, but it's sort of, yeah, it's all cardiac one thing. Yeah. Focus. <laughs> right. So I think I really enjoyed that because I could drill down and, and really get to know. The you know that one body system. Although in in CVIC it was funny when I transferred there. That's what I thought I was doing, and then I got there and they were talking about a, somebody that was there that was a trauma, and I was like, how is that cardiac? And they said, oh no, we're we're overflow for all the other oh. ICUs. And I was like, well that you know <laughs> nobody, nobody told you that. Nobody yeah. told me that. Yeah. Oh yeah, it, we are. And we, also you could have a pregnant person if they're having cardiac issues. And I was like, okay, I'm <laughs> out. <laughs> I'm out of here. No, but I mean, we—if you think about it, I guess that makes sense. But the for for the if there was a pregnant patient, they would have a labor and delivery nurse that would be doing. So I that never stuff. went into
1: my whole nursing career. I've never done one patient-specific population. You know, coming straight out of nursing school, I went to the ICU, and the hospital that I worked at, we took everything. It wasn't you know. The hospital that, you know, you and I've worked at, they have patients or different types of ICUs, like CV and trauma. No, we didn't have that. It was all, all mixture. So that was kind of interesting. And then you and I worked together on the oh, PCU. Sure. And so that was always fun because you always, you never, you know, mm-hmm. we got a mixture of everything. So you never right. know what you're going
0: to get on the PCU. <laughs> <laughs> But I loved it. I loved working on that floor. I loved the people that that we got to work with. And the patient population was very sure. interesting. Just, you just never knew. I learned so much. Oh, I
1: learned, hands down, I learned way more on PCU than I ever did in the ICU. And I think it's because of the diverse population that we had.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't all oh, yeah. ventilated
1: and they weren't, you know... Yeah, They some right. of them
0: more you did you you know you had trach vents so there was that and then but you'd have if any patient that was in the hospital and not quite sick enough for ICU but not quite
1: Respiratory ready to go wise, to the floor, yeah.
0: Ready to be on the floor, they could be there, they could have be a trauma patient that had their jaw wired shut, sure. uh, you know. It just, it's you just never knew what you were going to get. So, that was definitely a fascinating floor to work on. I learned a lot and appreciate it. Oh, time yes, that's absolutely. So I want you to tell, this is part B, so we have got a part C that you guys, you better, you better stick around for this. But so part B, I want you to tell them about this award that you got. And, and this and This is a very typical good nurse story that I would find to be like, this person, yay, they, they did this, this and this. So I'm, I'm like, I'm excited Okay, about So this.
1: I had a cardiac save in 2014, which means that when I got on scene, the patient was in complete cardiac arrest. And then the patient was transported to the hospital and they walked out of the hospital with no deficits, which it really, like that day, it really kind of opened my eyes to show me really, like we learn it all in school, early CPR, early CPR, early CPR, early CPR is what, you know, saves lives. But to physically see that was just, I mean, I can close my eyes and take me right back to that scene because it was just a phenomenal, heroic So the story goes, two people were biking, and one of the bikers went into cardiac arrest. His friend started CPR on him immediately, and then we got there, took over, and then he was transported to the hospital, and he didn't have any deficits and walked out of the hospital, and we got to meet him later. So that was really cool that it just put it in perspective that really early CPR really matters. Early CPR and accurate chest compressions.
0: Yes. Good, good, good chest compressions. It matters. So there's a couple of, well, I just a few, not a few weeks ago was talking about a story where a nurse, it was a NICU nurse. So she was used to tiny, tiny babies, tiny little babies. And yeah, and that's all she had ever done. And but just that day, she just happened to have had to do her recertification, her like two year ACLS recertification. And so she's going along the interstate and just looks over and sees someone that she can tell is in distress. She pulled over in front of them, got out. He was in complete cardiac arrest. She immediately started compressions. The, his wife was calling 911. She was the first person there on the scene and immediately started compressions. She did everything, everything right. A police officer pulled up and she asked for an AED. She hooked him up, shocked him. He went, went through all the things. And then he went to the hospital. He was, he, he ended up being intubated, was in critical care for a couple of weeks. He ended up going, having to go to rehab. It, he, it was just a Horrible, horrible cardiac arrest event. And yet, just like what you described, he walked right out of that rehab and is going back to work. It's like crazy. And then you have look at Damar Hamlin. I don't know if you know about this football player that went into cardiac arrest a couple of years ago. Yeah, I wasn't watching the
1: football game, but sure, I've heard about it.
0: Yeah, that I wasn't watching it either, but when when it happened, of course then everybody starts oh, sharing sure. it with each yeah. other and you're like, "Oh my goodness, it's terrible." You know, 24-year-old. And so just to actually get to see these things happen and and it works. It really works. I know a lot of times it it doesn't. You know, there's there's a lot of times when you just you don't get there fast enough or, you know, unfortunately, not everyone does know how to do chest compressions correctly. That's why it is so important for anybody, it doesn't matter who you are, you can take a CPR class and take it very seriously and and really learn how fast and how hard that you're supposed to do compressions and how important it is to, you know, continue those compressions and not stop. Sure.
1: So I, my son has went through CPR class and, you know, he and I didn't make him go through CPR. He wanted to go through CPR because at the time I was pregnant with his little sister and we've got His grandparents are older and he, you know, wanted to know how to do the correct thing if the time ever came. So, you know, he was, I think, 10 or 11 at the time when he went through it. So, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. You just never are too young to learn. That's, I think that's amazing.
0: I think a lot of people are afraid, even if they kind of, even if they kind of like took a class they are afraid they're going to hurt someone like maybe I'm not really supposed to do this and you just can't you just sure, got to jump your adrenaline in there and just takes over it. and you
1: just you do it and your training yeah. kicks in, in. mhm
0: so that kind of brings us to I, t- I promised you guys this crazy story so Natalie you and I worked together on the same floor on, on PCU and then you transferred from there to another department and then I transferred to CVICU, and one day I'm just working along, and in my in a patient's room, and they've got the t- the news on, and I look up, and it's Natalie on the news. For, I was like, "That's for a Natalie. good reason, not a bad reason." <laughs> yeah, it
1: was good. Oh my goodness, tell them what so happened. I so I transferred crazy. to a different department, and I'm getting to know everybody in that department, and we're talking and. The girl that I was talking to came from labor and delivery, and she was a NICU nurse and had been for many years, and she was an older nurse. And she said, oh, you were premature? And I said, yes. And I said, my parents kept a diary of when I was in the NICU, and all the nurses would write in my diary, you know, write a progression note or whatever of how I was doing so my parents could look back and see it. And so she said, hey, do you care to bring that book in and let me see if I just know anybody? And I said, Sure. So it's around Christmas time. It's like, I think the 22nd or 23rd of December. I bring it in, and she says, Oh, there's our boss's, like my manager's name. And I was like, That's a different last name. But I guess that many years ago, 30 something years ago, you know, it would have been a different last name and so we go and ask her so she wasn't there that day so the next day which was happened to be Christmas Eve and we were working just half a day that day I go in and I ask her and I'm like hey what was your maiden name and she looks at me like I had five heads because you know I just met this lady she just met me she's like why is she asking me this crazy random question and I said oh I said I think you took care of me I said did you work in the NICU and she said yeah but just for like Maybe a year or two. It wasn't long that she worked in the in the NICU and then transferred to the ER. And I said, "I think you took care of me." And she said, "Really?" And she got to looking, and sure enough, she had taken care of me all those years ago.
0: That is so crazy. And she She wrote wrote in in my journal. journal. And
1: so the news came and did a news article about it, and interviewed us both. She read part of the article that I had given her, so that. What made that year kind of special was it was 2020, so it was during COVID, and she wasn't able to go home to be with her kids that year because they didn't live here. Um, and so that kind of gave her a early Christmas gift, I guess, of being able to you know, know that she took care of me all those years ago. So it was really neat. And so for Christmas the next year, 2021, I gave her a picture. It was one that the news had taken of both of us side by side on one side and then the other side was a copy of what she wrote in my diary.
0: <sighs> oh my gosh, I've got chills. I love that. I love stories like that. I could not just believe. I mean, the way things Oh, work I know. And we're still and like together. we have that
1: special little bond. Now I've transferred out of that department into a different department, but we still like we have that special bond. And we have since that day. It was just it's just phenomenal.
0: Yeah, you guys are
1: just We connected.
0: are. That's a, that's amazing. Well, I love that story. And I told you guys, it was good. I knew I told you. you weren't believe No, it really it. It is good. one of those. That you, if you weren't
1: there, you wouldn't believe it.
0: Yeah, the fact that you tra- I mean, I mean, it really is kind of a random department where you transferred to. It was, it's not like, oh, just, you know, it's like a kind of very specific procedural area. And then she happens to be the manager that that hired you. And had no idea. She only worked. It's, it's a large hospital. This it is, is a big hospital. I mean, the odds of this happening just seem astronomical. And the astronomical. fact that she only worked there um, for
1: one or two years, you know, but it just yeah, goes to show you crazy. that, you know, you really never know whose life you're going to impact. I mean, that's been, let's see, at the time it was 36 years ago. I mean, who would have thought? Well... Thank you so much for coming
0: on here and sharing your stories. Just really your amazing career that you've had so far. And you. I think you're an amazing person and you do such a good job taking care of your patients. And I would just tell you guys, Natalie is an exceptional nurse. She's very thorough and she's just one of those nurses that's going to make sure she does everything to the letter, you know, correctly as, as much as she can. And it's so good to her patients. So I appreciate you for what you do, and continuing to stick it out at the bedside. Oh, yeah. We and need, I started nurse nurses. practitioner
1: school, so I
0: yeah. will end yep. that.
1: It seems forever away, but it will get here. Yep.
0: It'll be time to move on then. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to remind you guys, you can reach out to me at Tina at GoodNurseBadNurse.com and you can reach out to me on social media or just visit us on social media and follow us at GoodNurseBadNurse and you can rate and review us if you would. I'd love to get a five-star review and let us just say, hey, Tina, how are you doing? Love to hear from you guys. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. (laughs)